Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 113. I am your host, Dan Holzman. On this episode, our special guest is one of the founders of the legendary Flying Karamazov Brothers, Paul McGeed. Before I talk to Paul, though, let's thank our sponsor, the International Jugglers Association. You can find out about this great group of jugglers at juggle.org. All right, drop everything. Get ready to listen to Paul McGeed. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 113. My very special guest, Mr. Paul McGeed. Hello, Paul. Hey, how are you? Good, good. What a pleasure. Let me, on behalf of the International Jugglers Association, let me congratulate you on the Flying Karamazov Brothers 50th anniversary. Thank you. Yeah. Instead of starting at the beginning, let's start before the beginning. Uh, where are your ancestors from? Well, I am a Sephardic Jew. So my ancestors are from Spain. And in fact, I'm just getting my Spanish passport in the next month or two. Uh, they apologized to us after they kicked us out in 1492. You're not holding a grudge, though. You're not holding a grudge. I don't hold a grudge. I'm going to have to swear allegiance to King Felipe Sesimo, you know, and the same family that kicked us out. But I hold no grudge. So, yeah, we lived uh, after they threw us out. We lived in Italy for a couple generations and then we moved to Turkey and then uh, we were there for 400 years and then came over to the United States about 120 years ago. And growing up, did you speak other languages besides English? I speak French and Italian and Spanish, Hebrew, um, or, and English are sort of my fluent languages. And I speak a smattering conversationally of German and Dutch and Norwegian, believe it or not. And now a little bit of Turkish. You know, it's, it's a family thing. I mean, my daughter speaks more than I do, more languages than I do. My daughter, oldest daughter, Pesha. But everybody speaks Spanish. We all speak Spanish. In order to survive, our, our family had to speak many languages for many generations. And where were you born and what was your what was your childhood like? I was born in Seattle, Washington, and my childhood was pretty good. I mean, you know, we lived in Seattle and then we moved to California when I was in second grade. And I never actually accepted that I lived in California, even though I went to high school there and college there. But basically, as soon as I could, I moved back up to the Northwest. But we had, you know, pretty good childhood. My dad was a fairly famous doctor, was a research doctor. And, um, my, you know, my mom was a real advocate for women's rights. And my dad was Cesar Chavez's doctor as well. So we were very much into the anti-war movement. Of course, I was in the lottery for, you know, going to Vietnam number 315 for those of you who are old enough to remember that and what 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 was the cutoff was that a high number or a low number is that a, was that a good number that was a good number i was getting my cl my conscientious objector thing which tim first one of the other caramots did get in fact but he's a little couple years older than me but i didn't have to go through with it because i had such a high number so basically i believe it was if it was one if you were in one to 50 you were going and 50 to 100 for sure, was pretty sure you were going. For, to 150, you were probably in the military, but maybe not going to Vietnam. And, and then basically after 150, no worries. So, yeah, it was very nerve-wracking and it was definitely an incredibly formative part, I think, of everyone who started the Karamazovs. Um, that was definitely an important part of their lives. And as, as a kid, were you athletic? 
And what was your first memory of juggling? I was athletic. I was uh, into tennis and swimming and long distance running and water polo. And my first instance of juggling was through tennis because you're sitting on, uh, you know, at a court and you got a can with three balls in it and you're waiting around for the next match and got nothing to do. And then the next thing you know, you're juggling. I was probably juggling by, I don't know, 12 years old, something like that. Not really that impressed with it. I just was something to do. And it wasn't, I don't even know if I knew any tricks. I did see a juggler when I was quite young at, uh, in the, uh, must've been a guy from the vaudeville times because he was an older guy and it was in the parking lot of a grocery store. And I was super impressed with what he, this guy could do. And I must've been like eight or nine or something like that. So I remember when I started juggling from playing tennis that I was like, gosh, you know, there must be, I wonder how that, how that works. And I figured it out myself. So that's impressive because it's, I think it's much easier to learn of obviously nowadays from YouTube and all the videos, but if someone shows you, it's one thing, but just figuring it on your own is quite the challenge. It is. It was like really interesting, but I remember, I remembered how this guy, how the things were crossing and they weren't going in a circle. And that was my biggest clue. And uh, I remember puzzling it out. But, I, you know, I didn't really take it that seriously until I got to uh, college. And that's where I met Howard Patterson. He lived across the hall from the, you know, in the dorm from me. And it was at UC Santa Cruz. And he got sick with mononucleosis. And he had, we both knew how to juggle. For He learned from juggling walnuts. And someone had told him, like, you know, he could do two in one hand if he just threw one over then he would start juggling and that, and he figured that out. And then we had some friends from LA. What were they called? Um, oh, cock and feathers. Oh, cock and feathers. Yeah. Was it Billy uh, Barrett? I think one of them. Or? Billy Barrett. Yeah. And um, Jeff. <laughs> we're going way back. We're going way back. But anyway, Howard and I kind of had a mutual girlfriend in a way, you know, these are back in the. Sure hippie days and she knew these guys and these guys came to our college and did a show and it was very impressive and Howard learned a few tricks from them and then he got mononucleosis and had to spend like weeks at home and he could do nothing but sleep and juggle basically and he came back knowing a bunch of tricks and I said god if Howard could do it I can do it then we started juggling together and we became completely obsessed with it and there was a general juggling wave of uh that just went through all the college campuses at that point this would be 1972-73 and what were you studying what was your desire to be as a profession when you went into college at first, I was going to be a scientist, and that's what Howard was studying. He's studying biology. I was, um, but then I switched because I had gotten into theater. I was studying English literature and also medieval Islamic uh, history. Those were my majors, and I was going to be an academic. It was kind of my plan, or you know, maybe be in the theater or something. But I was definitely doing theater stuff in college, and. Uh, when Howard and I started like doing stuff together, I happened to be in a theatrical show called The Servant of Two Masters by Goldoni, and, you know, which was a Commedia dell'arte play. And the director wanted some jugglers. And I said, well, I, I'm doing that. And, and Howard and I could do something. And he said, well, why don't you come and show me? I said, well, give me an hour. We didn't really have any, you know, bit sure. together. 
And in a matter of minutes, we put this little thing together and the guy ran back across campus and did it for him. It was uh, Tom Tinker's My True Love. Uh, it was Pills to Purge Melancholy was the name of the book of Elizabethan body tunes. And we did a juggling bit to that. And we, and we basically put music and juggling together immediately. I mean, Howard was a really is a really wonderful musician. So he liked it. And then we got a better reception than the play did, which was not difficult. And uh, we thought, gosh, there's something here. Were you just ball juggling at that point? Were you juggling clubs or what was your level like? We did not know what clubs were. We didn't know. We had balls and we had, and then we had chair legs. Um, there were chair, there were like broken chair legs at the dorm where we were living. Um, and we juggled those and we figured out, but nobody, we didn't really get any lessons from anybody. We kind of made it all up, which is kind of why we kind of ended up doing what we did. Because Howard especially saw the, the relationship between juggling and music immediately. So most of our stuff was really based around uh, rhythm and, and also it was vis based around visual sets. And nothing like what jugglers do even today. Like, you know, everything we do is based around uh, changing sets and, and the speed with which when you're passing, you change those sets. So, like, for instance, if I had all red clubs and or blue, I should say blue clubs because that's my color and, and Howard had all red clubs, then we'd throw, oh, gosh, what do you call it in regular juggling? Um, a shower? No. I mean, we, like a every ones, like everys or? We, well, we call them um, slows in Karamazov. We have a whole other language, right, <laughs> that nobody knows anything about. We're like from, you know, we're like some isolated canton in Swiss, Switzerland. Right. You never did like a 3-3-10? Was that what part of your... Uh... I think it's an eight count is what you guys call it. Okay. So we throw every fourth pass, every fourth toss, self-toss is a pass. And then the next version of that is a four count. And then it's a two, and then it's a two count, right, which is a, a shower. Oh, okay. So oh, I definitely didn't grow up doing that. I mean, it was more like every no. others or everys or, or shower or... Yeah, we were a completely weird group of jugglers because we didn't actually learn it from anybody and we just kind of came up with it from our own theories, which makes sense to us, but not to anybody else, I don't think. So, you know, we started sort of inventing our way of working with each other, you know, of, of passing and what it meant. And then we started coming up with various theories about it all. And then we started making music out of it. We realized that the relationship between juggling music is extremely, I mean, it's just what it is because juggling is rhythm and music is rhythm essentially. And so as we say in the show, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, therefore juggling is music. So we started making pieces that were rhythmic in nature while juggling. And that was sort of one of our big initial breakthroughs in the juggling world i would think and after the uh theater performance what were your first like paid shows like did you start on the street or did you get gigs right away yeah no we started on the street so the reason it's our 50th anniversary is so this was 1973 and howard and i went to a renaissance fair in los angeles or was it the one in san francisco maybe it was the one in san francisco i can't remember was la one in the spring that was the one that run by the Pattersons? Yeah. 
Uh, I think that was in the spring. Yeah, so it was L.A. And Howard went down with a magical group, and I just went down to hang out. And we thought, oh, let's do that bit we were going to do for, you know, for the for the play I was in. And we took down, we took off our hats, not intending to pass a hat or anything, and just started practicing it for the show. And then suddenly somebody stopped and put a dollar and a quarter in the hat. And we were stunned. <laughs> That's how it starts. Yep. We were just stunned. We went, what? People can <laughs> give you money for this? Really? <laughs> And that was like a huge revelation. We went, oh, wow. And you guys didn't know I have an official act. Did you call yourselves anything at that time? Or just, it, was, it wasn't even that, uh, it was more casual than that. We had names. We had uh, Snout and Glib, Muck and Meyer, and then, and then we ended up on um, Patterson and Magid. And we even made, uh, I was in a printing class, and we printed out these cards by hand, which we have some left somewhere. Kind of got them I serious about it. I mean, I was gone for part of 74 because I moved to Alaska, um, but 74 to 75, well, actually, mostly 75, we got pretty, you know, we started actually really working on the street and making a lot of money. I mean, was that in Santa Cruz or would you go down to San Francisco? Where would you work on the street? Well, first we started in Santa Cruz and nobody had done it at that point on the street. Not really. I mean, there had been, you know, some itinerant, musicians had been around there but nothing like uh vaudeville act we went down there and i remember stopping the whole of uh you know the there's pacific street which is where the sort of the mall on in santa cruz at uh downtown santa cruz and we stopped the street from being a functional street all the cars stopped there was like hundreds of people around us and and the cops didn't know what to do because they'd never seen anything like that and we got away with it for a while until they came up to arrest us at one point hmm. and they said, you have to stop right now. And so we started passing the hat. Uh, the cop said, you can't do that. And then immediately, without even looking at each other or anything, just launched into, you heard what the man said, whatever you do, don't put a penny in this hat, not a dollar, not a $5 <laughs> bill. Don't put, and, and the money just started pouring. <laughs> it was so funny. We were around, we, you know, we went and did San Francisco. There were no rules. We went to, you know, Giardelli Square. I don't know if you remember that, but sure, that was a popular place, right? And there were no rules when we went there. There was nobody, like, there was one, that one juggler, what's his name? Oh, he's super famous for doing. Michael Davis or A. Whitney Brown or? No, no, no. Frankie Olivier? No, Frank Olivier was a kid. Yeah. No, he was before us. He was on the streets of San Francisco. Really well known. Gosh, oh, uh, Ray Jason. Ray Jason. That's it. Yeah, yeah. He was before us, but not much before us. Yeah, he said he was the original San Francisco street performer. That was his claim to fame. I think that's true. It was pretty unknown territory, and the cops didn't know what to do with it. The merchants didn't know what to do about it. You know, it's only later that all these rules and regulations started getting slapped on everybody who was a performer, which was kind of too bad. But anyway, you know, we were still going to school and, you know, we weren't sure what we were going to do with what we were doing, but we were doing quite well. Well, what was a good hat back then? Like, what kind of, like, would you do like a 20 minute show or just sort of jump no. up with the hats out there in front of you? How would you, how would you structure your shows back then? Well, we did two things. One was we did shows for our college. You know, we did hour long shows, which we were, were very theatrical. 
In fact, I'm looking at the poster, our first poster that we ever made for one of these shows, which is at one of the colleges in Santa Cruz. And here, I'll, I'll read it to you because it's kind of funny. I'll here. I was just looking at it yesterday. This is yeah. from 1975. It says, Flying Karamazov Brothers, and it's a, a very nice drawing of Howard and I holding torches. And it says, Juglito Ergo Somi. It's got everything in there, you know, and our names in, in a banner, in Cyrillic script, and the heart and wings on is on there already. It says, present an amazing hour of jugglery, legerdemain, and masochism. Two men <laughs> win quartets, third brother revealed, hideous immolations, horrible murders, fun for the whole family. <laughs> and what was your what was your motto again and what did it mean? Juglito ergo sum means I juggle, therefore I am. Nice. And was the third brother revealed then? That was um Smerjikov was a tape recorder. Oh <laughs> okay. So not an official member yet. No, not official. No, it was just the two of us. So we were doing these, you know, hour-long theater shows, and they were super popular and getting paid pretty good money for that, and then doing shows on the streets. So our street shows, though, we realized that, and, and this is kind of, you know, a little bit vulgar, but we realized that the average time it takes for somebody to climax, a guy, you know, to climax is seven minutes or so. And so we realized that using our scientific brains, because we were both kind of scientists, there's no need to do anything longer than seven minutes. <laughs> That's how long our shows were. They were seven minutes long and we just rake in tons of dough and then do another show. And we could like, we could make so much money in a day for back then. I mean, it was just unbelievable. Of course, if you can last for an hour, it's even more impressive. So, well, yes, super impressive, but <laughs> I'm not saying that anything about the quality, right? right the duration. Yeah. Well, that's a good system, though, like just seven-minute shows, wham, bam, and yeah. crank them out. Yeah, when we started doing Renaissance fairs on a regular basis, we did, at one point, we did, I think our record was 33 shows in a day. Nice. And we would just rake it in, and we'd go back to our little camp, and, I mean, we could hardly carry all the money, and we'd like, have these huge piles of coins. It was like filthy lucre that you'd a pirate had taken from a ship or something. It was just like so much. And we would spend hours counting it out. And it was just, yeah, it was really so fun. We'd do the same show over and over and over again. And we'd just start going improvisationally crazy, which was so fun. It's like you just didn't care anymore. Well, that's the best way to progress, too. I mean, I've seen acts that did the same show over and over again with no improvisation, and they never grew. The ones who would actually stray from the script and have fun doing it, uh, seemed to have the most development. Well, that was certainly us. I mean, we just didn't care. And we just had so much fun. In 1974, we involved my best friend from high school, Randy Nelson, who was an actor with me in, in high school. He didn't know how to juggle at all. And, but I, I said, we don't need a juggler. We need, we're doing, what we're doing is theater. We had our revelations about music. We had revelations about juggling and how to order it in our own you know kind of musical visual way but our i think our probably our biggest revelation was that what we were doing wasn't a juggling act it was theater that's still very revolutionary i mean you're still one of the only acts that have character names and had, had arcs to their shows that's was very revolutionary and still is to this day i know i don't know why people don't I, i've never figured that out why that never i mean we obviously became incredibly successful 
And it wasn't because we were like the world's best juggler. We were we were an incredibly good ensemble juggling group. But as far as like technically, individually, you know, we're fine. We're okay, but nothing to write home about. But it was the theater of it mixed with, you know, an ensemble's prowess that made us interesting. So I don't know why... Most people, more people don't do that sort of thing. What was the point where you decided to make this your profession? Was there a certain turning point where you looked at Howard and said, this is it? You know, we found out what we're going to do with our lives. Well, when we start doing these uh, theater shows on campus, Tim started doing our technical, was our technical director. We still call him our technical director. And he didn't juggle with us at all. And Randy joined us in 74, but he, he only lasted through the summer. That's where we got our name in that. Summer, we hitchhiked. That's how we got to gigs, by the way, so we hitchhiked back in the day. Um, and we hitchhiked to the Spokane World's Fair. You know, we didn't really have a name yet. And Howard was reading the Brothers Karamazov, which I had read beforehand. And we kind of went, wow, what a great idea. When you could be like the op- opposite of these tragic characters, but use the same names and make it kind of seem like a silly circus act. And we could always change it, we said to ourselves. And weren't you picked up by the daughter of a celebrity during this time? Oh, you know the story. Yeah. Yes. So we were hitchhiking and we got picked up in a VW van. You know, this is 1974. The person driving the van was Mary Sullivan, who was the niece of Ed Sullivan. And Ed Sullivan was still doing shows up until 1975. So we thought this was like, oh, my God, this is incredibly you know, a sign from from the heavens that this is the thing we should be doing. And uh, she was been driving to the West Coast from the East Coast with her friend Mona Poga, who was a Latvian. You know, we thought, God, two girls, this is really lucky. Who knows what's going to happen? The girls were very clear that nothing was going to happen and <laughs> slept out in uh, a cornfield. But do they know you were jugglers? Did that seal the deal? Uh <laughs> That always seals the deal. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed when you think about it now, like, you know, we were traveling around with like a duffel bag full of sickles and torches and <laughs> gasoline and people would pick you up. <laughs> so that was four of you at the time. We're, we're all hitchhiking together. No, just Randy Howard and I. Three. We came up with a name that night in the cornfield uh, while we, you know, and then Mona Poga and Mary Sullivan took us to the to Spokane the next day, and we performed at the World's Fair, which was like our biggest gig ever. And how'd you choose the Flying Karamazov Brothers? Was that just sort of a a tribute to circus acts in general? Yeah, it was kind of like something silly, and we thought it would be a kind of a funny funny little joke with people heard us saying the Flying Karamazov Brothers. People would laugh uh, to themselves and say, oh, how aren't those boys clever? I think most people were mostly confused by it. And probably still are. And how did you divvy up the names? You became uh, Dimitri, correct? So Dimitri is kind of the impulsive one, you know, going by his emotions. And, you know, it seemed to sort of fit. And Yvonne is the intellectual one, which Howard sort of is. And Alyosha is sort of the spiritual, pure one, which is Randy was kind of like. And then Theodore, which is Tim's name, is both the name of the author and the name of the horrible father of the whole family. And we, you know, we like the ambiguity of which, what, was he the author 
or was he the father? Of course, when Sam joined up, he was sort of the very earthy, very different from the rest of us in his sense of humor. He uh, got the name Smerdyakov, which was the, you know, the brother who was mentally challenged and his name meant the stinking one hmm. given to him by his wonderful father, of course. There were sort of these ways of kind of being similar to the characters that we inhabited in the in our characters and we you know we basically kept it ever since i mean we still have with all the new karamazovs that are around they all still get karamazov names that somehow in some way are relevant to their character and how long were the original four together and what were the sort of steps that led from the sort of humble beginning to like your first uh broadway show so uh, first there was randy and he became alyosha when we became the Flying Karamazov Brothers. and But he quit after our first summer together. Oh. Went back to college, I believe. And then it was just Howard and I in 75 to 76. And then we graduated from college. And by the way, Howard and I were valedictorians and spoke at our graduation. Nice. And Randy became very successful too, didn't he? Working for Pixar? Yes. And then uh, finished at Apple. I mean, he became very, very... Uh, successful but he didn't quit for good then he just quit for a little while because he after we left college in 76 after we graduated we decided to make a go of it we decided okay we're gonna try this we've had so much fun and it's paid off and we're gonna go make a go of it and be on broadway within 10 years you know by 1986 that was our our goal right Randy decided to join up with us, and we all moved to San Francisco and lived in a flat in the Haight in, in you know, San Francisco on Schrader, Cole and Schrader. Had a, you know, invented lots of stuff there, juggled in our living room. There was endless club, you know, uh, the you could see the indentations of club bottoms and club handles in the walls and the ceilings everywhere. It was who made your original clubs? Were they then fabricated? Did you remember who the manufacturer was of your, your first clubs? It, first of all, it was Tim First who made oh. them from um, dowels, wooden dowels, and then, you know, like, you know, knobs that you could, you put on the end of the dowels, and then you would get plastic bowling pins and cut them up and, t- and then tape them. And, and Tim did a really nice job of that. And then we got, what were they called? Those uh, Stuarts, something Stuart. Stu Reynolds, maybe? Stu Reynolds, that's it. Thank you. Thank God you're here. <laughs> well, I, I do know some juggling too. So and I know your story quite well, but uh, yeah, but, you tell it better. Those, but the fiberglass ones, did you ever juggle those? I hated them. Yeah, they were, they were they're kind of like the Americans that uh, Todd Smith made later on. Yeah. Very hard on the hands. Oh, my, hard on the hands, hard on the head. Oh, my God. I mean, I remember juggling those with um, the Bay City Reds. You remember those guys? Was that Jeff Raz and that Jeff group? Jeff Raz and uh, Don Forrest and um, Danny Mankin and his sister. Joan Mankin? Joan Mankin, yeah. And, oh, my God, those things were killers. They're really well balanced. Though. I mean, they're great to juggle until they, like, you did made a mistake or, you know, somebody threw you a bad pass and they hit you in the face. You would... It was like getting punched at a bar. Yeah, they're a very hard uh, fiberglass and, and not pleasant. Not pleasant at all. No give. But also became kind of a standard because even now today you use sort of that same style of club. 
Yeah, we stuck with American style clubs because of their theatricality, basically. I agree. I think they're a lot more, they look, you know, not necessarily more like bowling pins, but they're like the ones Dubai started making, the plastic ones, definitely have a different feel and look to them. Yeah, and that's what we use. I mean, I still use Brian Dubay's American Classics from about 20 years ago, the one with the round knobs, not with the flat knobs. Right. Is the flat ones just the way we juggle? We don't throw from the from the knob. Some people like drop the club as they're doing their follow through and throw from the knob, and we throw from the actual post of the the club itself and use the knob as a, if you're going to like if it's slipping through your hands, at least you have a chance to. Mm-hmm catch it before it hits the ground. Although I have to say, Sam Smerdjikov was a knob juggler and you could tell because every once in a while a club would just hit the ground inexplicably because it just slipped through his hand and there's no place to go. And the round knobs you can spin and... Yeah, better for club swinging and things like that as well. Exactly. So it's just, I don't, Brian just would never, he broke them, he actually broke the mold of the clubs with the round knobs which made me a little upset, but hmm. I'm always looking, if anybody out there has them, I'm looking for round knob American classics made by Brian Dubay from about 20 years ago. Well, we'll put out the word on, at the podcast. Maybe there's some <laughs> old collectors. Maybe David Kane has a bunch hidden away, you know, our juggling historian. Oh, is that right? I hope. Yeah. You know, he has a juggling museum. Oh, wow. I don't know if you've contributed anything to the museum, but it's the only uh, actual juggling museum in the world. Where is it? Uh, Ohio, I believe. Oh, well, I mean, I have three storage rooms full of juggling caramas, of juggling stuff that I'm sure nobody ever did before. I'll have them contact you because you should have your own wing in the museum. You know, we have the first illuminated from the inside clubs that were wireless and um, they also changed position with when you change position, the color in the club, the light, the lit. Illuminated color in the club changed position as well. Is anyway, it was we did a big project with MIT. Yeah, well, we'll get to that because that's something else I want to talk about. So you're doing shows all together. Your goal is Broadway. How did you sort of progress to that goal? Well, um, so we first started doing shows on the streets of San Francisco, and then we did also the Renaissance fairs. Some of the oldest movie you know movie video wasn't video it was just it was movies at the time there was no video um is from a 77 renaissance fair we did and we started going around in vehicles mostly uh vans delivery vans things like that we started doing shows in san francisco that were pretty theatrical and comedy based we lived uh about two blocks or three blocks from play uh it was called the comedy the comedy club, I think, or something like that. Comedy cellar, maybe? Uh, it wasn't the cellar. It was in the hate. But it was like a little cafe, just blocks from our flat in, in San Francisco. And we got to do an hour every week. And we called it uh, the comedy science. And we'd go there as scientists. We'd wear lab coats and stuff and have clipboards. Because that way we didn't have to memorize everything we wrote. Hmm. And check out what was funny and not wasn't funny. <laughs> it was pretty fun. We were building our show at the time, and that's where we came up with, like, um, jazz juggling was a huge revelation because before us, 
if you dropped a club, everybody stopped everything and you went back and redid it all. Right. Right. And we realized that dropping was, in fact, juggling, juggling like your thing here, drop everything. The important thing is not that you made a mistake. The important thing is that you keep the, the pattern lives on, whether it's it's in the air or not. It was much more like jazz where you were improvising and you didn't stop because somebody played a different chord or did a, you know, went on a, a wacky improvisation. You just kept playing the music. And so you found you followed a certain chordal structure, which is to say the, the feed structure, you know, in our case, feeder plus three, what we call feedies. And we just kept juggling. And then we figured out what the timing was for picking clubs up and all that kind of thing. That was super revolutionary. I mean, I remember Hubby Burgess for years would slag us because we wouldn't stop after we dropped a club. We said, no, the whole point is for this bit, certainly, and, and in general, is that you don't stop. Yeah, compared to like the circus style, now you just now a, a drop is sort of, people like to see the way you work it back into the pattern. Right, and I think that we're not the only, you know, the, the, it was something that was new to the juggling world that hadn't ever existed before. So we figured that out in San Francisco. Actually, we used to rehearse a lot of the times out at the uh, Golden State Park. And that was really fun. And we had a special place where we rehearsed, whether it was foggy or not. And, um, I remember Michael Motion came up one time. And we were super impressed with him. He was like, that was 19, it have been summer of 76, maybe? Something like that. Yeah, that was great. And there was a rumor that someone said, I think actually Penn Gillette said it on his podcast, that he was the one who taught you guys how to pass. Any truth to that? No, no. <laughs> I didn't think so. He, yeah, Penn's a blowhard. No, there was no, there was no, <laughs> no truth to that at all. Okay. I remember passing long before that. Okay. I just wanted to dispel that rumor then. Yes. We figured out all our... Long before we ever met Pendula, we had figured out all our various modes of passing. So, yeah, absolutely no truth to that. It was the first first thing that Howard and I just started doing was passing, basically. It did seem hard to believe. So, But that was just something I guess he had said on his podcast that I thought I'd bring up to you. Yeah, no. Whatever. That's sort of the first thing that anybody sort of decides to do when they're juggling together is, hey, let's see if we can pass these back and forth. I know that he was originally uh, partners with Michael Motion. So maybe he taught Michael to pass, but but not you guys. And when we met Michael Emotion, he was he was much more a single jugger rather than an ensemble jugger. Yeah. And our whole thing is ensemble stuff. And so, in fact, even to this day, there are people who have a really who are incredible single individual jugglers, but they have a really hard time juggling with us because of our our style is so different. Yeah, so we we did that, and we started working on you know other clubs in San Francisco in a theatrical kind of a fashion. We started a, a variety show at the boarding house in San Francisco. What was it called? I forget. We had you know where we'd have like a a star come to the show. We did them once a week, and it was like um, we had uh, Max Gale, who was Wojciechowicz, come and Barney Miller show. Yeah, from the Barney Miller show. That was a good show, yeah. And he was a co comedian at the time, or, or what kind of performer was he? He wasn't a performer. He was an actor. 
but he was we did some bits with him we wrote some stuff for him to do with us we had phil proctor come and i think peter bergman you know from fireside theater yeah i'm big fans i'm still friends with phil really good friends with phil you know people like that so that was kind of a cool thing and then we started doing sort of longer bits we still do in the show that we're doing right now which is the terror trick Right. We invented that in San Francisco. The gamble we invented. in The, the terror trick is the nine different objects. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Today, it's a sickle, a torch, champagne, an egg, dry ice, uh, meat cleaver, rubber fish, um, a ukulele, and um, oh, a frying pan, I think. So there, there were slightly different objects, but there were nine of them, and... We came up with that in San Francisco. The gamble we came up with in San Francisco, which is where we uh, invite the audience to bring up any objects they would like us to juggle. We get three tries and three modifications. And for whoever the dice doing the challenge to juggle, you know, within 10 counts, keep those three diverse objects in the air. And if he wins, it's a standing ovation. If he loses, he gets a pie in the face. And we're still doing that. And there, there are certain rules, though, about the objects juggled. Isn't that correct? Yeah, they have to be heavier than an ounce, lighter than 10 pounds, and no bigger than a bread box. And nothing that'll keep, nothing that's alive or anything that'll keep the champ from being alive. But was the gamble the original name, or did it have a different original name? No, it was always called the gamble. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought I read somewhere that it was called like the challenge or something first. No, that's what people call it, even to this day, mistakenly. We call it the gamble, although. You will agree with people. Yes, that's the challenge. That's a great bit. I mean, that's I've seen uh, people steal that bit, <laughs> but uh, you guys were the originators. Yes, 1977. And, and where that came from was Howard and I, before Randy joined up, we were doing uh, medieval. They had these medieval restaurants. Mm-hmm. And there was one in San Jose, and you know people would come there dressed up, and they would be eating. You know turkey legs and having medieval times with the women who were wenches and all that kind of thing. And we were like the jugglers. And we came up with this idea, hey, they could throw something at us and we could juggle it. Wouldn't that be fun? And it turned out to be a horrible mistake because they would throw <laughs> knives at you. And yeah, you know, I mean, it was like deadly. Right, right. But then that's where the genesis of the idea of doing the gamble came from, basically. So, you, so you're putting together sort of all these original tricks and your original show. Yeah. Uh, how'd you go from the sort of the San Francisco to more of a national touring? Did you then uh, decide to take it on the road? Well, we started touring and doing these shows in various places. Like we did, uh, we went to the Renaissance Fair in Minnesota and mm-hmm. uh, hooked up with Dudley Riggs who had a improvisation or two improvisation theaters in Minneapolis. And we started a very long run there, which we did in Minneapolis for like a month or two or three or something like that. Um, and then, you know, we started doing two hour long shows. I had been on an airplane flight from Europe and met a guy named, oh, I forgot his name. Anyway, it was the uh, magic seller, the magic seller. Mm, okay. Magic seller. And it was a it was a jazz club on top. Turk Murphy's? Turk Murphy. And then below that was the magic seller run by what was his name? Knut Langley. <laughs> and 
And we were the only non-magic act there. It was just Howard and I for a long time. And then it was Howard and Randy and I. And we came up with some great bits there. But we did that every week for weeks and weeks and weeks. You know, we'd finish college and go up there and do something different. And we started getting a huge following in the uh, science fiction community, <laughs> strangely. And you guys were featured in a book. Was that around that time, uh, Lord Valentine's Castle, or was that later? That was a little bit. I mean, that was like, that would have been 76. Yeah, 76, 77. And did uh, Robert Silverberg consult with you guys about the forearm jugglers, or that was, uh, you just do it and then thank you guys afterwards? To tell you the truth, my girlfriend at the time, Catherine Kroll, was, um, you know, we'd broken up and she started going out with this guy. He was fascinated by the whole juggling thing. And yeah, he took a lot of the stuff from us. So, you know, we, we did talk to him about it. Yeah, I remember reading it. I was disappointed in the book, but I, I like the part with the jugglers. Yeah, I mean, it's not the greatest book. <laughs> but it still was one of the first sort of depictions of any kind of jugglers or juggling act in, a, in an actual book that I had read. So I, I was quite impressed by that. And he tried to really understand what that was. So we started doing these sort of longer runs in, you know, like a small theaters, dinner theaters, and they were super fun. And then in um, 1980, we were doing um, Chicago Fest, and we were on Navy Pier. Oh, and we were, you know, doing, and we were doing like evening shows at colleges and things like that as well. And um, anyway, we went to Navy Pier and did um, did a show right after Henny Youngman, believe it or not. Oh, we loved loved that for about a week. And these people from the Goodman Theater uh, in Chicago, mm-hmm. you know, which was like sort of the big regional theater in, in Chicago, came and saw the show and were like super impressed. And then they came and we did a, a run at the other end in New York in the village, um, which is like we said, the smallest theater, the farthest off Broadway. Because <laughs> it was like super tiny stage. We had to be off stage most of the time to do any of our routines because the roof was so low and it was just tiny. But anyway, they came there and we also won an Obie from doing the show at the other end or the bitter end, as it was called then. And they booked us to do, the people from Chicago would come to see the show and booked us to do a run at their theater at the Goodman, which was unbelievable because this was like... That's a big step up. That's nice. Huge step up. And we started got huge interviews from all the big newspapers and all the TV shows. And the place was sold out, was super successful. And that just started us on the road to, you know, it was 81. And 1982, we were doing the Next Wave Festival in, in Brooklyn. And we got an incredible rave review in the New York Times. And then we were doing an ABC holiday ice show where we're juggling on like this little platform in the middle of an ice rink, you know, but for national television. Right, right. A producer named Mace Newfeld, who, who's the guy who produced The Hunt for Red October and other films like A Bad Elk, but had been a comedy writer for at the Ed Sullivan show, Love Vaudeville, and he wanted to produce us on Broadway by 19, the summer, late 
spring, early summer of 70, 83, sorry, we um, had our first run on Broadway. So you beat your projection by about three years then? We did. We were very happy about that. And then in 1984, uh, you performed at the LA Olympics. What was that experience like? Well, so 82 and 83 were big years. Not only were we on Broadway, but we had done a version of Comedy of Errors at the Goodman. Oh, okay. Yeah. And that was hugely successful. But now the the, the show uh, Comedy of Errors, that included a whole cast of what became known sort of as new vaudevillians. Yeah. Who else was in that who else was in that show? So that was Vaudeville Nouveau with Jeff Raz and Danny Menken and Mark oh, Mark's last name, so I've forgotten. There was our band people that we played with musically otherwise as well, who are still incredibly, really well-known musicians today. Abner was in that too, Abner the Eccentric? Abner the Eccentric was in there very much so, yes. Um, And other people, there were... um, I remember a baton twirler, I think? Yeah, Sophie uh, Sophie Hayden, who was originally Sophie Schwab, Sophie Hayden was the world champion baton twirler of 1974, and she was absolutely amazing but she didn't want to be known as a baton twirler she had a really great voice and wanted to be very much a broadway actress but we convinced her to go ahead and use her incredible skills and she could do like four batons you know and she she would practice backstage she had this bit where she was like throwing around a machete and she would like throw it 20 feet in the air catch it behind her back while doing a cartwheel she would practice that backstage in the complete dark and it didn't take very long for everyone to learn that oh sophie's doing the machete better not walk over there (laughs) well baton twirlers are a different breed i mean even a baton is is pretty hard to catch and not once again not that pleasant on the hands so they're a different different breed than the jugglers oh she could juggle though she could juggle pretty well yeah um she was yeah she was amazing she was a tap dancer we had jenna leishman we had Chaz Ellsworth, um, Derek McGee. And what year was the, 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 was it a PBS show that it was then filmed for? Yes. Yeah, so we, so what happened was that we did in 83 at the Goodman Theater. Then in 84, after we did my version of the Three Musketeers, which we also did at the Goodman Theater with much of the same cast, we, after we had rehearsed and then premiered the Three Musketeers, or Moscow period, I should say. We then would rehearse Comedy of Errors in the afternoon, and then we went to L.A. and did it was America's representative for classic theater, which I thought was hilarious, because we were up against the Royal Shakespeare Company and the you know Mnuchin and the Teatro Piccolo from Italy, and we won. And hmm. it was amazing because we were not in great shape when we got there as far as like having rehearsed it enough. And we thought, oh, my God, it's going to be a complete disaster. But our opening night, which was, you know, the only night you get with all the critics and everything there, it peaked perfectly. It was the perhaps the most perfect version of that show that we ever, ever done. And we got incredible rave reviews. And, yeah, it was that was amazing. That was 1984. But, you know. We were doing all kinds of projects. like. Well, one big uh, high-profile one, of course, was your appearance in The Jewel of the Nile. How did that come about, and can you share any stories from the filming of that? 
So we were doing a run at the Westwood Theater Playhouse. Okay. And now it's called the Geffen Playhouse. And we were doing a show there, and it was very successful. And Danny DeVito and Michael Douglas came to the show, and they just loved it. And then I guess I must have given my number to Michael Douglas or something. Anyway, next thing I know, I get a script from Michael Douglas saying, you know, I wrote you guys into this movie. Would you like to be in the movie? I was like, are you kidding? Of course. <laughs> yeah. We were going to be Sufi warriors that seemed kind of like menacing at first, but then we're really good guys. And so, uh, of course, me being Sephardic and fairly uh, Middle Eastern looking, I, I got the starring role of Tarak, um, the, the head of the Sufi order. And then he asked me about whether uh, there was somebody else who might be able to play the jewel. And I suggested Avner to play the part. And so Avner got the part and we all went off to Morocco for like two and a half months to shoot there. And then went a month in Nice to do the beginning of the movie. And yeah, it was uh, very interesting and wonderful and exciting and strange. We, the script kept changing. And first we were like a lot more central to the movie. And then we kind of, I think Kathleen Turner wanted more of the, you know, it just changed. Right, right. And when we got there, we realized that they weren't even paying any attention to the script. I mean, to the they, they were paying attention to the bones of the script, but as far as what the words were written, it was like five weeks into the shooting of the film, and I was walking by a set one day where they were shooting, and I heard words from the script that I had read before. <laughs> it was the first time. So that was kind of interesting. And we had a lot of time on our hands because we were, you know, yeah, like sort of second unit stuff. But we were always on horses or camels waiting around sometimes. And I got to ride a lot on this incredible Andalusian horse, which was just amazing. All, you know, decked out in my costume with a rifle on my back, riding through the desert. That was just amazing. And I would get, I got to do that a lot. But, you know, we got to shoot a lot too. And see, what are some good stories? Well, I remember one time, we were supposed to be hiding under the sand and as Danny DeVito was walking by and then we pop up and surprise him. Of course, I thought, well, I'm sure they have something built down there. So, you know, <laughs> right. There was nothing. It was a hole in the ground and then they covered you up and it was 115 degrees outside. I remember being under the sand going, I'm, I'm, I've got to breathe. I'm, there's no air down here. I'm dying of heat and lack of air. And I'd hear them go, well, I'm not sure. What do you think? Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, but maybe we should set the camera over here. Okay, yeah, let's move the camera. Move the camera over here. And I'm like, guys, you know, you can't move every second. Jack, you're dying. You know, a minute is like ten thousand dollars on a movie set, right? And it's like, oh, I thought I was going to die. I really did. And then Randy Nelson, like he was a blonde, so was he more covered up? And he was more covered up, and he, I think, he got his beard dyed a little brownish or something like that. Right. And um, and Sam was pretty covered up. Sam, I mean, that's a funny Sam story is that we were, I think, maybe in Meknes and Sam would go by this jewelry shop every day and he saw this necklace with amber pearls on it, I guess. And he really wanted to get it for his wife, Barbara. And, you know, we got paid in dirham every day, our per diem, you know, and you could not spend enough of it. You just couldn't. And they weren't tradable in, in, in any other currency. So you had to spend the money. So he wanted to get the, this necklace and he went to the shop 
And Sam was a very, very stubborn fellow. And so he said, the guy said, you know, I'll take 20,000 dirham for this. And Sam said, I'll pay 1,200. Anyway, the guy said, no way. And Sam started walking in the shop. He said, okay, you know, 15,000 or whatever. Anyway, this went on for three days. <laughs> and Sam basically sat in the shop and drank this guy's tea. And the guy kept saying, all right, 10,000. And he got him down to the point where the guy said, just take these. I don't care. Get out of my shop. <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny but we go by there and we see sam sitting there just very sternly waiting for the guy to give up oh i remember being i thought it would be very clever of me because i liked smoking cuban cigars at the time to have my character smoke cigars and so i had them buy me boxes of incredibly good cuban cigars my favorites which are monte cristo um number ones I thought, oh, this is great. I'll be able to smoke as many cigars. It was the biggest mistake I've ever made because, you know, you have to keep smoking and it has to kind of be the same length. Right. They'd be fixing out a shot and you'd keep smoking. And anyway, by the end of the day, I was green in the face. <laughs> and I was like, I hate cigars. I will never smoke these again. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a fan. They're nasty and smelly, but I can see having too much could get you pretty sick. Yeah. Well, I was much younger then. And was there a big premiere? Did you get to go do like the big Hollywood premiere type of thing? There was a big premiere. We didn't get to go because we were doing shows. And you guys always did new shows, which is something like a lot of other acts, you know, have like sort of one show and just keep trotting it out kind of thing. How important was it to keep coming up with new material? And can you kind of run a list down of some of the names of the shows and sort of what they featured that were different in each one? I know that's a lot to ask, but... Yeah. First was Juggling Cheap Theatrics which is our classic first show. Then there was Juggle and Hide, which we were inspired by the movie set, actually, because the movie set, on the movie set, were all these cardboard boxes. And, and back then, when you you know made a leap, bad guy was thrown off a cliff or something like that, they would fall into a huge pile of constructed cardboard boxes. And the boxes stacked one on top of the other would break your fall. And very nicely actually so there were cardboard boxes everywhere and we started playing around with cardboard boxes and then we started thinking about the idea of the void and form the actual philosophical meanings of juggling and so we anyway we came up with this whole show called juggling hide which was sort of our second show which we premiered actually at the mitzi new house in 1987 i think because we yeah we did our in 86, that's what it, the reason we couldn't go, is because we did our second Broadway show, which was at, before we did Comedy of Errors at the Vivian Beaumont at Lincoln Center, at the Lincoln Center Theater, we did, first we did Juggling Cheap Theatrics, which was the first new theatrical show in the redone space of the Vivian Beaumont. The Beaumont had been closed for 10 years, and we were the first thing in there after 10 years. And we had a run there, and then in 87, before uh, we did Comedy of Errors. But after we had done the run at the Beaumont, we went to the smaller theater, like right afterwards, it's very unusual, and did a premiere of Juggle and Hyde. So that was premiered in New York in 86 as well. And then we did... Well, at what point you did a, a version of uh, Room Service. Were you big fans of the Marx Brothers? I mean, it seems that way, uh, sort of based on your performance. And how, how close was that to the original play? It was the original play. Mm. 
um, the Marx Brothers actually didn't do the original play exactly. We kind of did the original play, but we updated it a lot. And we did that at the Mark Gaper Forum. We did it at a bunch of theaters. That was really fun. That was in 96 or 97, I think. Well, let's move forward a little bit in time. Talk about working with MIT. What year was that? And you worked with the MIT Media Lab. And what kind of props were invented for that show? So that was in 2000, and that was a show called Looniverse, and it was about the universe and, in many ways, how juggling is a, meta- a very direct metaphor for the universe. We worked with a graduate, a bunch of graduate students from the physics department at Media Lab, which is a adjunct sort of department of, me- of MIT, full of basically young geniuses and their genius professors. And I had a friend there who was a professor at the physics lab, and he thought it would be a great idea for us to come there and tickle their fancies with a list of impossible things for them to come up with. So I went there and made a list of all these things I thought would be great to do for you know juggling in various kinds of ways. They basically did everything on the list except for 3D volumetric display, which still is really impossible. So we worked with them for about a year and they spent like a load of money on on the project and came up with all these great inventions that were useful later on. Like, you know how you've probably seen like where there's an image on a floor somewhere. And if you quote unquote kick it, it moves or you touch it, it moves. Mm -hmm. We invented that. Oh, nice. And Media Lab with that team of kids. And then they, I guess they used that for all kinds of stuff later on. We also came up with the juggling clubs, the first illuminated juggling clubs that were uh, controlled by computers, you know, through um, and and their positions were um, notated through sonar. And they would, you know, continuing evolution of jazz juggling, we had come up with basically the idea that would you you would not only improvise throwing passes, but you would improvise where your position was. The positions would change constantly, depending on certain calls and things like that. So that you were throwing passes improvisationally while you were moving from being the feeder to the middle position or to the one of the two outside positions. There was this sort of constant dance going on. What we did with the clubs was that the clubs were being tracked on their position over a certain area of the stage. So no matter where you actually ended up, the position that you were in would remain the same color. So like, you know, there was a set of clubs that were blue and they were, you know, illuminated blue lights from inside. And, uh, and then there was a position that was red lights and one that was yellow and one that was green. And depending on where you got moved, your color that you were juggling at the time would not go with you. It would stay with the position. And we thought this was incredible. In fact, it really is incredible, but nobody really cared. That was one of the things we learned from the show. Well, that's true about a lot of juggling. There's some things that we think is the most incredible. The audience doesn't quite get. It could be more difficult than they think it is or more impressive than they think it is. But the audience likes what the audience likes, right? That's absolutely the case. We also invented this thing where we would, we have this marking on the floor, which we call the mandala. What we did was with MIT is we divided each of the sectors of the mandala, which was like a big, huge hexagram. And each of those 
hexagrams, you know, the, they're divided into six, would have a full octave of 12 notes. Each one was another hexagram that would fit into each of those sections, which was, a, you know, an octave. And the computer knew by the position and through sonar and all this stuff where we were over that particular hexagram at any given moment. And we had accelerometers in our hands and we could control pitch hmm. and attack. And anyway, and we could with, you know, wearing these certain jackets, jackets with all this machinery on it, we could dance over the stage and the dance that we made, the music, if we wrote we wrote music that would dictate what the dance was, right? By moving our hands and dancing over the stage, we would be playing music in four di- as four different instruments. Does that make any sense? Well, that's another thing that very few other performers have done, you know, with juggling. You know, your combination of, of musicality with the back drums. And uh, I believe you were the first to sort of play music with sort of a marimba, you know, a, a yeah. marimba clubs. So that combination of music and juggling is very unique. We had a marimba, a marimba phone, actually, which they stopped making in the 20s, I think. But it's flat. It's not, you know, one set of keys over the other. And, yeah, we played music while juggling. And then we did that bit, I don't know if you ever saw it, where we tap danced, juggled, played a tune while juggling, had bells on our heads, <laughs> sang a song in, in harmony, and played harmonica and chewed gum. Oh, that, <laughs> that's quite a bit. It was so hard to learn and so embarrassing to do it in front of anybody until you actually figured it out. But because you're doing six things, six different things at the same time. But yeah, so we, you know, but we did all kinds of things with music. Yeah, we, we invented these things called back drums, which are real actual juggling musical instruments that are, I would say, you know, built as far as, you know, a, an instrument being something that's purely made for music and Something that's made purely for juggling, I, I think it's unique. And it's not gimmicked. I mean, later on, they had uh, my friend Dan Menendez came up with a thing called the bounce piano, but you actually played what you hit. Yeah. So there was no like sequencing. Well, that's exactly right. In fact, when we were at MIT, I had a huge fight with the music department at, at Media Lab because their whole thing was in about sequencing. And I was like, that's not really music because you can't make a mistake, right? The idea of juggling and the idea of being a musician or an artist of any kind is that you are dancing with failure at all times. And the beauty of it is is to defy gravity, defy failure, if, if only for a little while. And that's what gives it, it's both tragic and... Um, well, it, it's spontaneity, it's, it's sort of immediateness that it's, it's live in the moment. You're creating it there as opposed to having created it before and just sort of acting it out. Well, but also it's, I mean, you write it down, you are playing a piece of music and interpreting it, but you have to actually do it in, you actually have to touch the note in such a way or play the note in such a way that it sounds right, it's in tune and all that kind of stuff. So we never, ever sequenced anything. That was That's a completely against our whole thing so we never did that and we would never do anything like that well in our, in our last 10 minutes i'm going to try to cover as much as possible so i'm going to rapid fire some some questions at you if you don't mind there's so much to cover but i have a couple points i definitely want to hit before our time is up what is the story about you totaling jerry garcia's car 
Well, I don't know how much of this you can put on, on tape, but I was really good friends with Ken Kesey. And I lived at his barn for a while at some point in the, you know, early on. And we, had, Howard and I had done his poetic hoo-hahs and we hung out with the likes of Gary Snyder and the incredible poets of that time, Peter Olofsky, Allen Ginsberg, and people like that at his house. And it was kind of cool being included in that group of people. But he and I were good friends. And somebody had given me a certain kind of white powder, which I did not really appreciate or enjoy that much. Sure. But it was a, pr a product of the times. A product of the times. And he had a vial of a certain liquid made by a guy named Owsley. Another product of its times. I understand that. Yes. And so I traded him some of this white powder for this last vial of 68 stuff from this man named Owsley. And we were opening for the source. If you had to do something like that, definitely the source. Yes. Very, very uh, original stuff. Yeah. And it had been kept in a freezer and was in prime condition. And so we were, we opened for the dead a lot. We were, you know, doing a show with them at the Oakland Coliseum for New Year's. And I thought, well, gosh, after the show, that would be a great time to check out this uh, certain kind of liquid. And we did. Uh, we opened, you know, we did the show, and which we also did with the drummers, you know, with uh, Mickey Hart and Bill Kreutzmann. Uh, you know, we did a whole section in, in the Dead show with them. But anyway, so after we'd done that, we uh, checked out this liquid, and it was really interesting stuff. Right. And the concert was over after a few hours, but we were still um, in another altered sort of state. And Rick Scully, who was the manager for the Dead, said, Paul, you got to move your bus. It's right in front of Jerry Garcia's car. And we had a big school bus at the time, which I still have the relic of. And it had on the back of it a metal porch which was razor sharp as far as it was concerned other vehicles right very sharp edges on the back of that porch on the back of that bus so uh sam got in the back of the bus on the porch and it was a re I, we were really tightly squeezed in there as far as parking goes and i was driving and sam would go go forward go back go <laughs> forward go back it was a comedy routine yeah and i thought he said go back. And he said, he had said, go forward. Anyway, I went back and he didn't say anything. And I heard, oh. <laughs> and I had torn off the front end of Jerry Garcia's car, which was a brand new black BMW. Well, what Sam probably said was go forward. Word, 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 word. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so, uh, Rick Scully came out and, all he could say was, Jerry's car, Jerry's car, Jerry's <laughs> car. And I was like, going, I'm really sorry, Rick. I'm, gosh, I don't know what to say. He said, finally, he came out of his stupor and said, you tell Jerry. You tell Jerry. And he kept repeating it. You tell Jerry. <laughs> so I went up and I with Sam and we went into Jerry's room. And there was Jerry. And he was kind of playing guitar and shaking a little bit from some sort of thing he was working on. Yeah. I said, Jerry, and he goes, yes. And I go, I, I got to tell you, I, I, I just ripped off the front end of your car with my bus. You asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I'm really sorry, man. He said, look, if it costs a lot, 
I'll pay for it. If it doesn't cost too much, you pay for it. I went, okay. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> hey, let's talk about the, uh, the, the new old time Chautauqua. That's another thing that you're quite involved with. Uh, that's been going on for quite a few years. Is that still going on? It's still going on. It's been going on since 1981. I'm sort of the founder of the whole thing. There are lots of people who were there the first one, but I kind of came up with the idea of doing it as a Chautauqua. And yes, we're a intergenerational organization of about 40 to 60 people every summer that go to rural communities and Native nations throughout the greater Northwest. And we... Um, basically do vaudeville and bring educators and and do workshops and we do service projects and we do parades and we go to senior centers and we work with the community on various issues that are going on and basically do a collaboration but we work a lot with native americans pretty much every year and we've been doing that for 42 years now and we're going to do one this summer uh, where we're going to uh, Montana and to Alberta. We're working with the Blackfoot uh, Confederacy, which is four Indian nations that are uh, both in Canada and the U.S. And uh, we'll be doing that mm, yeah, in, the, in June, probably. That's been very fulfilling. And uh, it was a thing that Kara Masoch uh, initiated years and years ago, obviously. And it's now kind of an institution. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that sounds great. I wish I could take part one time. Is, is that something that's open to other performers, or how does someone get involved in that? You just go onto the site, which is uh, Chautauqua.org, and in fact, the applications are going to go up really soon, and you make you apply, and then there's a group of people called the Who Am Us Committee, and they look at you and go, oh, yeah, it sounds great, and then you just got to get yourself to wherever it is we're going from, and then we uh, who, if you're a performer, you once you get to where we leave from, we take care of all the gas and all the food, and it's camping and hanging out. But it's, I mean, you know, it's a really wonderful, spiritual, and super fun journey into the unknown every year. You are in situations you couldn't possibly be in otherwise. I mean, we work with amazing Native people, and we work with also these very right-wing communities that just it's just fantastic to open their eyes when we come marching down their streets you know well speaking of working with different people uh the caramasas have gone through quite a few cast changes mm -hmm. uh what's it like losing members and what years did you become the last original member left i became the last original member left in 2007 when howard retired so I guess I've been doing it now for 16 years as the last person uh, from the original cast. So we first there was the new person was Sam. I mean, there's Randy, Tim. How, first there was Howard and Paul, then Randy, then Tim, then Sam, then uh, a guy named Michael Preston, and then uh, Roderick Kimball, and then and Mark. Ettinger, and then it really started to open up because we did a run in New York and we needed to have like two or three groups because we were touring at the same time we were doing this year and a half long run in New York. And so it expanded out. We, we had uh, uh, Stephen O'Bent, who was 
wanted to be a Karamazov from the age of like 11 or 12 when he first came to see us. And as a side note, his parents' first date was a Karamazov show. So another dream come true. He got to become a Karamazov. Yeah, he wrote to us and Howard sent him, a, you know, saying he wanted to be a Karamazov when he was like 11 or 12. And, Kar- and Howard sent him this whole long list of all the things he had to do in order to, you know, to be a, a real Karamazov, which is learning to dance, play music, juggling, obviously, theater, all this stuff. And he did it all. Now, do you need to have facial hair? Is that also a requirement? or uh, It's not really a requirement, <laughs> but yeah, and he had a little problem with that, I have to say. Right, right. doesn't anymore. But anyway, he became a Karamazov early on, you know, early on in this transition. Now we have basically there's eight or nine people who can do the show that we're presently doing, which is um, called Foreplay. Right now we have Andy Sapora, who's also a very funny, wonderful performer. He's on the East Coast. We have Stephen Horseman, who is uh, he lives here in Port Townsend, where I live, and is also a wonderful musician. And I said Stephen O'Bent, and then there's Amiel Martin, who is an amazing juggler. He's mostly a high-tech person, but... He, he once sent me a video of him and some other guy juggling 11 between the two of them. <laughs> and it was just like, oh, yeah. It was like those videos where, yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we did it. And they were just, you know, they just grabbed it. It wasn't like it ended with all the clubs on the ground. It ended with them just holding all the clubs, you know, after they juggled it for about 30 seconds. I was like, wow. <laughs> but that that's more than you need. I mean, you guys are still about the theatricality and the, the simplicity. Yeah. No, no. It, it's just yeah. as an impressive juggler. Yeah. Uh, and a Sephardic, like I am. Gosh, I think that's that's pretty much... Oh, and, and Harry Levine. Mm-hmm. Harry Levine. From uh, the Mud Bay Jugglers? I know Harry. The jugglers, yeah. That's right. And what was the reunion like? I think in 2019, all four original members got together. What was that? At the Oregon Country Fair? Yeah. How was that? Was that fun? That was super fun. It was... Yeah. We did a street show. I still have the money to make the street show. <laughs> End up in my yurt here. I'm, I have my, my yurt is my office, so it's magic money. I'm just leaving it up there. Nice. But yeah, so we did a street show. We did. We had some talks that we gave at the fair. We did a bunch of stuff that was like from way, way back. It was so fun. I mean, it's so. It was also interesting doing it in our now ancient bodies. You know, the stuff that we had done when we were like. 19 or 20. And you said you're, you're 69 currently? I will be 69 fairly fairly shortly. And what do you think about retirement? Do you feel like that's coming or just uh, there's no retirement in the future? What's your future hold for you? I didn't even break a sweat when we did the show last week. And I was like, well, you know, I, I know it's going to come to an end. It has to. We all come to an end. And eventually all, all the clubs are on the floor. But right now, I'm managing to keep the clubs going. I don't know. I mean, I really have a lot of creativity left in me. I want. I would like to make at least one more show. So I'm hoping that I can at least do that. And I mean, I really want to make a show basically called Old Guys Juggling. Well, I could be in that one too, if you, if you want jugglers over 60. Yeah, it'd have to be people over 60. And it would be a, about dropping, really. <laughs> yeah. What 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 do you have to do when perfection is no longer an option? Well, yeah, but but it is. I mean, that's the thing is, you know, you, you get. I got my inspiration for it basically from old vaudevillians. Like when you watch 
Bob Hope or like George Burns, guys like that. You know, when they did their little dance routines, it wasn't like the super fast dance routines from when they were in their 20s and 30s. It was like this slow stuff that was super cool because you could see all the timing and it was perfect. And I think that's the thing about you could do with a, a bunch of old guys juggling is actually do a bunch of routines that were based around where you are at the moment, not about, you know, how amazing this trick could be or whatever. It's actually more about matching your age with and what your ability is with the beauty of being able to defy gravity yet again. So anyway, I'm hoping I can get to do that. Who knows? Well, we're coming to the end of our podcast. It's been wonderful. For people who want to have a long, successful career like you've had, what kind of final wisdom can you share with people who look at you as such an inspiration? Uh, What can you share with them as far as uh, an idea that they can incorporate into their own acts and careers to give them half of the longevity and success that you've had, Paul? Well, I would say that really you have to remember that when you're performing in front of people, it's theater. It's always theater first. And that will give you the key to making things for the rest of your life. If you base your juggling around only your ability and the beauty of the tricks themselves, which are beautiful and no doubt about it, they're incredible, but it's got a limited shelf life. That wasn't what was interesting to me. For me, what was interesting was the theater of it. And it was an unexplored avenue in the world of theater and it has plenty of places to go you know i mean i hope someday people will look at our scripts we wrote everything down and many of our routines are written down in, on musical staff paper so they can be reinterpreted and maybe you know some jugglers in the future will do die for the perplex which is a show we did or looniverse or juggling cheap theatrics they're shows that can be replicated by other people so I, anyway, I would say, you know, to people who are interested in juggling as a long term profession, that they should think about it, not just technically, but theatrically. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. I just want to say how honored I was to interview you about your career and what a big part you played in uh, influencing my own career and the career of so many others. Uh, once again, a big thank you from the International Jugglers Association. And a big congratulations as you approach your 50th anniversary with the Flying Karamazov Brothers. Thank you so much for being on Drop Everything, Mr. Paul McGeed. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it very much. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast episode 113, my conversation with Paul McGeed. Congratulations, Paul, on 50 years with the Flying Karamazov Brothers. Hey, before I go, let me thank our sponsor, the International Jugglers Association, also known as the IJA. Don't forget about all the great products they have and, of course, the yearly festival. All right, now go out there into the world and drop everything, except when you're juggling.